0: we want to take our Bibles this morning. we want to turn to Matthew chapter 1. And as we do, it's great to be back. Let me just say that. It's great to be back in the pulpit with you and with the church with you and uh, all the <clears throat> joy that we have in our worship. And uh, you just saw participation there in our joy ministry. He's just expressing his joy, right? And uh, amen. <clears throat> Has been kind of an unusual morning. Uh, I am sick this today, so I'm not going to be Uh, shaking hands with many of you, I'll be coughing a little bit during the message, and you'll be irritated, but I'll be irritated even more, so, you know. But, you know, we have a little uh, study back here uh, for me, but also for our guests and things like that. Because it's for our guests, there's special locks on the door because we might want to cut out one area for our our, uh, guest singer, guest preacher, and so nobody can just accidentally open the door into the restroom. And so the door has um, I mean, the restroom has doors on, on both sides, a little hallway thing that you lead out to both ways one into a Sunday school class and one into the, into the study. A while back, because of the guests coming in and, and uh, not wanting to take a chance, they put locks on the doors that could only unlock or lock from the inside. And I knew sooner or later it was going to happen to me. <clears throat> yes, I got locked in the bathroom, and it was time for service. And uh, I knocked on one door, nobody was there, knocked on, of course, nobody's going to be on the other side. Nobody was in there but me. And so I just got to thinking, what am I going to do? And I just thought to myself, you know, I wonder if this key fit it, you know, and it did. And so I'm here today, you know, and able to be on time. Um, We're going to begin a new series of messages today on uh, the life of Jesus, Jesus' story out of the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be starting in chapter 1. Now, if you're going to start what I think is one of the most important books of the Bible, for me at least, how would you start it? I mean, this is a book that I recommend for new Christians to read. It's the book that, that changed my life. When I was in college and some people challenged me kind of to read the Bible, I was challenged by their reading at least. I started the book of Matthew, and I went through it. By the time I got to the end of it, I was so thrilled by the word of God, that I, I really gave my heart anew and afresh to Jesus Christ, started following him as Lord. And it was such a distinctive decision in my life, I'd never turn back. And so the book of Matthew, more than any other book of the Bible, is precious to me. Now, we're going from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and you're trying to get everybody's attention right off the bat. How are you going to start that book? You want, well, you want to start it maybe with a, my name is Ishmael, maybe, something like that. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Maybe with a story, I've been told in writing that if you're going to be an effective writer, you've got to start off every chapter with a story. The last thing I would think you would do is start off with DNA.com because that's what we find here. In fact, some of the times when I say, now I want to recommend to you as a new believer to read this book, Book of Matthew, just start there. Just skip the first 17 verses because you have no idea. They're going to have no idea what's going on there. But the Jewish audience did have an idea about what's going on in a genealogy and we'll explain that in just a minute. But let me just bring you to to speed here a little bit about what Matthew was trying to accomplish as he was transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That hadn't been a, a prophet in 400 years. And now he was trying to transition the Jewish audience from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That's why Matthew's target audience was the Jewish person. Uh, the Jewish person that was lost, the Jewish believer as well, to trace things back to the Jewish faith. And in doing so, he had a real challenge in his life because the Old Testament was all about the law. It was about obeying the law and really doing the law in order to to please God. Now, something new was going to come on the scene. Not only was Jesus Christ going to come on the scene and be born of a virgin, die on the cross for our sins, but the whole idea of grace that God's un- undeserved favor, that is, uh, Chuck Swindoll maybe uh, defined it uh, really well, where he says, uh, "is to extend favor or kindness to someone who does not deserve it, can't earn it, and I would add, desperately needs it. And so, we're talking about God giving of himself, and that is foreign. The whole grace thing is foreign to the believer of the Old Testament. And so, as we open up this uh, chapter, we find this within the genealogy in itself, we find the acts of grace being involved to introduce the Old Testament believer into a New Testament faith. Even in the genealogy, we'll find that in just a few moments. But first, I want, to, I want to read a couple of verses here. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Benadab and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Simone. And Simone was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah would you like me to read on? (laughs) You know, you can see why I would maybe say skip these uh, verses as a new believer in Christ. But as we we look at this, we ask ourselves the question, what does that mean? What, What is that all about? I want you to notice, first of all, kind of a side note here in introduction as I introduce the whole book of Matthew. It doesn't begin with once upon a time. This was a true story. Now, it does have a hero. It does have some villains in it. It does have a rescuing but it is not a fairy tale. It is a historical account of what has gone on, and that's very important. It's not advice, and though, although there's advice in the Bible. It is news, news that has happened in the past. Uh, my wife and I <coughs> were visiting our son Brandon in North Carolina, and I was, we were kind of talking, and um, he was talking about some of the challenges of his young church, and praise God, they are running close to 352 baptisms, this year if I can brag a little bit and uh, give a report as well as you have uh, supported that mission and that church but he was saying I said what, what is the one challenge you have in your life he said getting people to come every week I said well join the crowd um, but he said here's a great insight he said a guy came to him and he said man that's ex- Brandon that's exactly the message that I needed for today that's exactly I, I came here God led me here and you nailed it for me three weeks later Three or four weeks later, he saw the guy again. Hadn't seen him in that long. Thought he just really was going to come. He acted like he was going to just be involved, really there. And he said, well, you know, uh, Brandon, that was a great message. It just met my need right where I needed to be, right, right where I am. And he said, well, where have you been the last three weeks? He says, well, I've had a good three weeks. You know, so he didn't need the advice. But see, this is not just advice. Advice is something that will guide your future. News is something that's happened in the past, and this is news you can use because it's news that Jesus Christ came, died on the cross for our sins, raised again on the third day. It's news that you can use right now in your own personal life. And so, we look at this genealogy and we ask ourselves the question, why? Why start off this way? When you and I, you and I live in an individualistic society, and so when you go looking for a job or you want credibility, what do you do? You pull out your what? You send a resume, sure, and all the good stuff about you. I mean, you're just the greatest guy, person in all the world on that resume. Most of the time we leave some of the negative stuff out, and especially when it, doesn't, it happens in a very short period of time, like a job maybe you've had for two or three months and that's it. Well, you leave that part out. This is, this is different because they lived in a group family type of society. And your resume was your family. It wasn't what you've accomplished. It's what your family has accomplished, where you were from. And it was imperative. If Matthew was going to convince the Jewish audience to receive the Lord in their heart, it was imperative that they traced his birth all the way back to Abraham. Because Abraham was the chosen one of God. Genesis 12 said Abram, he later changed his name to Abraham because he became the father, not just a father, but the father of many nations. So he's changed his name to Abraham. But at that time, Abram was approached by God and he says, I want you to go to a place where you've never been, leave your family and just trust me with it. And he did that. And the Bible says God counted that to him for his belief in God as righteousness. And through him, he had Isaac was born, as it says here, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then uh, Perez, and and Zerah, and all these people were born. Well, Isaac had 12 uh, different tribes that he developed from his sons, and these 12 tribes became the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's Abraham, Isaac, and then the 12 tribes, and everybody born from them. So everything had to trace back to Abraham, otherwise the prophecies of the Old Testament would not be fulfilled in the Messiah. So they were looking for this Messiah, this person to come to rescue them. He had to be from, um, from Abraham. And then there were challenges that Matthew faced in all this. First of all, imagine you being an Old Testament Jewish person, and you were just expecting Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, the Messiah, to come one time. And he was going to be the coming king. What we think about Jesus Christ coming back again, and what happens in the Book of Revelation, etc., though that's the coming King that the Jewish people were expecting. They saw Jesus, or rather, the Suffering Servant role in the Old Testament, Psalm 22, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Psalm or Isaiah chapter 53, describing the grief on the cross as Jesus bled and died for our sins. They felt like that was symbolic. And it applied to the nation of Israel because they've been persecuted so much over the centuries. They see themselves as the role of the suffering servant. And so for them, the announcement of a Messiah to come, at this point, they would be saying to themselves, well, I don't know what you're talking about. How come he is not, why is he not uh, conquering the Roman Empire? So there's a challenge there. there. was a challenge also in the fact that they were looking for the Messiah for centuries and centuries, and it did not look like he was coming anytime soon. 400 years before the last, the last prophet, Malachi, which Tim Dix preached on last week. 400 years, no kings. There was, there was nobody to look to. In fact, it looked like everything was going the opposite direction. They were under Roman rule. Haven't you had your, your prayers like that? You think, well, I've been expecting this for years. In fact, I, I'm not even expecting it anymore. It looks like everything's going the opposite direction for my son, daughter, mother, or father. And so you, you wonder about the, the grace of God and the answer to prayer. Well, not only that, but the, probably the biggest hurdle Matthew had to make is that it was ingrained in the Jewish audience, the Jewish people, that you had to obey the law, the law, the law, the law the law was there of course there's rules and we need to live by uh, those rules except for the civil law of the uh, Jewish faith with all the ceremonial I should say the not the civil but the ceremonial law the civil laws are there for a reason to guard us to give us guidelines to give us guardrails in our life and we need to obey them but they felt like you had to obey them in order to get to heaven they had to obey them to please god you had to obey them to get the blessings of god and so for Matthew to come along and give the message of grace was foreign to all these people. And so he's easing into this. And so right here in the genealogy, he reminds them of the grace that God has given them in the past. How do we see this? Well, we see them see this grace through five women that are mentioned in this text. Look in verse 3. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar five women. Well, first of all, women were not usually in a genealogy because they were not looked upon in high regard uh, back in this day. And so they were, they were left out. And then you also left out the things that were kind of black eyes in your in your genealogy. You didn't want to be reminded of that. I mean, no nation is perfect, right? So you never talked about these kind of things. Tamar. Who in the world was Tamar? Well, she married the son of Judah, who was the, I guess the biggest tribe, really, of all the nation of Israel. And uh, he married, she married Ur, who then died. Well, it was customary back then that the next son in line that was available would then take on uh, the uh, deceased wife and marry her. Well, Judah was supposed to take care of this, but he didn't. In fact, that son that was involved in that didn't want her. He didn't want to uh, you know, have her and another wife and another wife and then spread his um, inheritance out among so many. So he did not want to marry her. And so he allowed her to, or allowed him not to marry her. And he says, look, I'm going to give you my next son. But of course he's too young. But once he grows up, I'm going to give you that son so you can have some children. Well, time went by, it never happened. He didn't put that on his calendar, you know? And so uh She thought to herself, she knew Judah was going to another town, so she dressed up as a prostitute. Put herself on the side of the road and you can find out pretty soon why Judah had such, I guess, a big family. He really got around because he picked up this prostitute as well, as well as others. So he picked her up and then uh, he said, look, I want to pay you something, and I've got some calves or whatever back home, and I'll send you one. And she says, well, leave your signet ring and your staff, and I'll exchange it to the, for the calf when, uh, when, he, when your servant comes with it. And he agreed to that. Well, she got pregnant, as she planned to do. And then when he found out about, Judah found out about it, he was going to kill her until she presented to him the ring and the staff. And he says, the father of this child, these are the things that belong to him. And immediately he was convicted. Now he said, man, that, that's horrible. That's sordid details. It's in the Bible. See, the Bible doesn't leave anything out. And it was an example, and I can tell when people were reading this thing, they were thinking, wow, we don't even talk about that at the dinner table. We never talk about Tamar. And now you're bringing it out to us. Well, not only that, but what about the next one? Someone some that is maybe a little bit more familiar. Simone, the father of Boaz, in verse 5, by Rahab. Rahab, in Joshua chapter 2, we find this pro- another prostitute, and this one's a real prostitute. I mean, she, she, uh, she'd been at it for a while, and that was her way of making a living. But the spies of the Old Testament, you know, just go give you a little background, I guess I, got, I need to back up. Israel was about to go into the promised land, but they sent spies out into Jericho in order to spy out the land to see how they need to overcome this, uh, this city. And Rahab uh, uh, greeted them and said, look, you can stay in my house, but if you do that, I want you to save my house and uh, my life and my, everybody in my house. <coughs> they agreed to that. And the Bible says this about her in Hebrews 11. It's the New Testament book of Hebrews. When it's listing out all the champions of faith, it says, By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. By faith, what did she believe in? She believed in the parting of the Red Sea and all the other miracles that God had done. So, But we find another blemish, a blemish that needs grace. We also find Ruth, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, verse 5. Ruth, well, she's got a whole book named after her in the Bible. Has to be a good lady, right? Well, you're right, she was. In fact, everything about her that was sordid and, and, um, and sinful was really more out of perception. Ruth was a Moabitist. Now, nobody hung around the Moabites because they were idolaters, and you don't want your kids to be influenced by idolaters. So you, you just did not have anything to do at all with the Moabites, Well, she was a Moabite, but a Jewish young man married Ruth. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Ruth became very, very close. A good book for mothers-in-laws and daughters-in-laws to read, okay? And uh, they became very close. And so when the son died, Naomi said, look, I'm going back home. And Ruth said, hey, look, I'm going with you. I'm with you. I don't have any place to go, and I love you, and I'm going to follow you. Went back home. She was gleaning in the fields, and a fellow by the name of Boaz looked out in the field and says, "You know, she's good looking." You know, I don't know what he said really. You know, but he said, um, "Man, I, you know, she's very, she's very lovely. She's very lovely, and I want to meet her." And she says, "Oh, that's the, that's the daughter-in-law of Naomi." He said, Naomi. Hey, i I think I'm next in line on that. All right, to marry her. He says, "No, you got somebody ahead of you." He said, oh, "Well, well, the, the guy ahead of him." Didn't want to marry her. Again, did not want to spread out his inheritance. But he had to do it by law. So Naomi had this idea. Said, look, what I want you to do in the middle of the night, I want you to go into Boaz's camp and get under the cover with him. Or get get at the feet of him under the cover. And so she did that, knowing the perception, knowing what was going to happen. When they woke up, they said, Yo, well, look, you know, look what's happened here. And the other guy just didn't want her at all then, and he had a way out, and Boaz ended up marrying her. That's all perception, but nevertheless, scandalous grace. Scandalous grace with Ruth, and scandalous grace with also Bathsheba. Now, you say, where is she mentioned? Well, it's worse than that. She's not mentioned. Look with me in verse... Uh, Verse 6, Jesse, the father of David, the king. Well, here's David. Somebody reading that genealogy. Yeah, that's right. Man, we're proud of David. In fact, when, Jesus, when the Messiah comes, he's going to be reigning like King David. That's what the Bible says. He's going to take the throne of David. Man, he's our hero. He's our guy. He said, well, you know, he married. He had, a, he had son Solomon. Yeah, yeah, Solomon, eh, not, not, not so great. But he had her by Uriah's wife. Bathsheba, hey, skip over that a little bit. That's okay. Uriah's wife. Wow, what happened there? Well, King David was run out of Jerusalem at one point by his son. Had to give up the throne for a while. And David's mighty men followed him. And these were men that were great soldiers, and they were also loyal to death for King David. Well, one of them's name was Uriah. The Bible says in 2 Samuel, it's time for the kings to go out to war, and David stayed at home. Uriah went out there with Joab the general, General Joab, and with the troops to fight the battles, while David, who was supposed to be there, stayed home. He looked out on the roof, saw a young woman by the name of Bathsheba, inquired of her, asked her to come on in, or really ordered her to come in, and he had a baby by her. She got pregnant. So what happened? He he thought, i got to find my way somehow out of this. So he called for Uriah to come off the battlefield to sleep with his wife so he could always say, hey, you know, this this child is Uriah's, not mine. Because nobody knew about really the scandal. And so Uriah came, and he was noble. He said, how in the world can I sleep with my wife and stay in the comfort of my own home well, my friends and comrades are on the battlefield and sleeping on the ground. Well, David was stuck, so he sent a note by Uriah as he went back to the battlefield to the king, or rather General Joab, and said, Joab, what I want you to do is take Uriah into the, the fight, the trenches, and leave him. And so he withdrew the troops. Uriah out there by himself, of course, was killed. And David did not confess his sin. Not until Nathan the prophet came to him and said, I know what you've done. God's told me. He's a prophet. So God's told me what you've done. Here's what you've done. And David then repented of his sin. And Psalm 51 is all all about that. Created me a clean heart, O God. I've sinned against you, and you only have I sinned. Scandalous stuff. And we find that God forgave him. Now it doesn't mean that he didn't have consequences even in his own family. The rest of his life was really tough after that. Really tough. But God forgave him and his relationship with God was restored. And then what about Mary? You know, we think about Mary, a sweet person, wonderful person. Look in verse 16. And Jacob the father of Joseph, this husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. Now notice, I, I notice you can't see this in the version that I'm, I'm preaching from this morning, but the old King James Version, all of these are begats. You know, we joke around that, like, yeah, I don't want to go through Matthew with all the begats. What does begat mean? It means it's a natural born. They were naturally born of the father and the mother. But he, they skip all that in the original language and say that Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, is called Christ. No begat. It was a supernatural birth. We read on, and we'll look into this a little bit more next week. But it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. I'm looking at verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, and this is like a super engagement that I won't have time to get into this morning, more than engagement but not marriage, to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly well, okay, something happens to your life, and your girlfriend comes to you and says, "Uh, look, uh, I'm pregnant, but I'm still a virgin. You know, the Holy Spirit has impregnated me. How do you know that? Well, the angel came and told me. Now, how many of you are really going to buy that story? Nobody. Joseph didn't buy it either. He was going to put her away quietly it's only in this passage when the angel came to him and told him something different, then did he act differently. We find Mary, a virgin, having child of the Holy Spirit, but she would ever live with a stigma, because few people, I believe, ever believed as she was pregnant, a few months early. No one really believed that Mary and Joseph were innocent. Scandalous grace. Grace is always, it always takes longer than we think, it never seems to make sense. We always think it's going another, another direction, and always more than we think. When Jesus came as a Messiah, um, the The Jews were thinking, this is just for us. In fact, after it happened on the day of Pentecost and all the Jewish people uh, were saved, it didn't happen until Acts chapter 10 that the Gentiles had an opportunity to receive Christ. It was all about the Jews at first. You see, the the Jewish people just thought it was just for us. But no, God said, no, there's something greater than this, something far more than this. The grace of God is for everyone. And So we look. Grace to extend favor to someone who doesn't deserve it, cannot earn it, and desperately needs it. it includes forgiveness. It includes the gifts of God. Remember what the Bible says about the gifts. <coughs> the supernatural gifts that are given to you are by grace. Prayer. You see, grace is just really God's generosity. Anything that he's given you is from his Grace. And so we look and see how grace helps us. Grace, first of all, is there, and we can receive forgiveness. Verse 21, she will bear a son. She shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Forgiveness is the greatest gift of all. And it's by the grace of God that that we are are saved. You see, it's not that sin doesn't cost something. There are consequences to sin. You know, the old illustration, well, if you kill someone, go into prison, and then you say that you've received Jesus, God forgives you, but you still, have to, you still have the consequences. You still are in prison. Well, the consequences as far as our salvation is concerned of our sin is Jesus dying for us on the cross. He gave His life for us. He spilt His blood for us so that we could have eternal life and forgiveness through Him. And that's the second thing we, we see. We see there's a grace here. <coughs> there's a grace not only for forgiveness of sin, but also a grace to be saved. It says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and the it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And the chapters to follow We will find in chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see that these were given to the Jewish people to prove to them that they needed a Savior. They thought, hey, I'm in Abraham. I'm in him. And therefore, you know, Abraham was the chosen one. I'm in Abraham. And so therefore, I'm okay. You see, Abraham was just as important to the Jewish people. I mean, Jesus is the chosen one. We're in him. And Jesus is precious to us and to the Jewish people, Abraham was precious. And so we're looking at this and we think, wow, this is weird. Every other religion in the world can be described again by the word do. I've got to do something to earn my salvation. And so, no, I, I no, Pastor, really. I believe in a God of love. I do. I believe in a God of love, I believe in a God of grace. And I, I, I live that way. In fact, if the Bible looks like it's not really about love and grace, I just side with love. You need to understand the only religion in the world that ever talks about God's love is right here in this Bible that I know of. You, you look at the Babylonian gods, the Greek gods, the Roman gods. They're all superhuman. And they're all, they all have needs of themselves. And they're using the humans on the earth in order to accomplish and fulfill their needs. You will not find that with God. You'll find a God of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But if I'm going to believe the love of the Bible, I need to believe the rest of the Bible. I need to believe the rest of it. And here we find the Jewish person thinking works, 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 works. The typical person that you deal with day by day, works, works, works. They just think they're doing enough. If they believe in God at all, they they feel like they're doing enough. To receive God's love and grace. But now something new is introduced. So, grace for forgiveness, grace for yourself, for salvation, and then grace to others. In verse 22, it says this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When, G- when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, and she had given birth, and he called his name Jesus. How did he change? I mean, think about it for just a moment. Here was a man who was madly in love with this young girl. <coughs> And at the end of the day, he was going to put her away privately because he loved her. He didn't want to embarrass her. But he couldn't take responsibility for something that he had not done. He was hurt, deeply, deeply, deeply hurt. He didn't believe the story, nor would you, nor would I. My my wife-to-be has cheated on me, or someone has done something to her that she will not own up to. And I don't know what to do. I believe her, but yet I can't believe her. And so I'm going to put her away. Privately, just to the side. Divorce her. Then all of a sudden, he changes one day. What happened to his life? The Bible says that this angel, verse 20, he considered these things. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What happened to his life? He, he was able to give grace because he experienced grace. He was bewildered. He was hurt. And the Spirit of God, around the angel of the Lord, came to him and said, It's true what Mary has said. It's true. You can bank on it. And you need to go ahead and follow through and take Mary as your wife. It will be okay. He experienced the grace of God. And therefore, he was able to give it. Um. In my last church, I never, I, you know, it's funny how the things you remember, but in my last church, uh, a lady by the name of Nancy, uh, one of the most committed people to the Lord, said, you know, I have trouble with one passage in the Bible. She said, it just, it just bothers me. And I said, what is that? She said, it's the parable of the vineyard workers. I knew exactly what she was talking about. In this gospel, Matthew chapter 20 talks about it. Jesus says, a man comes along, he says, you know, my vineyards need some harvesting, so um, if you'll work for me all day, I'll give you a denarii. He comes before the village, and all these guys stand, hey, we're in. So they, they go to the vineyard, and they work all day. Well, he knows he's not going to get it done with this group, so he comes back and says to another group, you come and work with me. I say, We'll just say three hours later, just for argument's sake. Three hours later, I want you to come and work for me, and I'll pay you uh, what it's worth. They said, fine with us, we need work real bad. And so he keeps doing this all day until finally he comes to the 11th hour, the the last hour of work. He says, I got to have, I have to have some more workers to get this thing done. And so he goes back, he gets the last workers and he says, you know, I'll I'll pay you fair. That's fine. And so they line up to get their pay for the day. And the first ones line up for, I mean, the last ones that were hired line up first, and the first ones that were hired li- line up last. So you're, you're in the, the, the last group. You're hot, you're tired, you're sweaty. You can barely bend over from all the work. And the first people that worked only for an hour, they get a denarii. Well, that was what's promised you, a denarii. And you think, wow, I really hit the jackpot. This guy's really generous. I'm really going to get paid. The next group gets a denarii. Well, they think it's okay. I mean, after all, they only worked 3 hours that day. And they got paid the same thing that they the, the guys in the end were paid. They they felt like I was extended grace, so they're extended a little bit more grace. That's okay. But the ones that started the day said when they got their denarii, they said, "This is not right. I've worked all day and I get the same thing" that someone gets who worked for one hour, that's not fair. Now, if you're looking at it from, I don't know, a Christian life perspective and trying to do that, maybe, that's, maybe you have an argument. But it's not about that. It's about salvation. That's what the parable is about. And so here's a person that was saved at six years old, or maybe, at least they joined the church, they were, got baptized, they were a good girl, good boy, all their life. They did the right things. They went to church. They were involved in church. They, they did things at church. They were committed to, to the things of God. They even read their Bible some. And they get to go to heaven when they die. But then the first, there's somebody on their deathbed, and they're 70 years old, and they've lived a life of addictions and debauchery, whatever. They have not, in fact, maybe even not even believing in God and even infecting people themselves in their own life and influencing people for sin. Somebody comes along, shares Christ with them. Tears begin to flow down their face and they get saved. That's not fair. That's not fair. I mean, after all, I've worked for God all my life. And I'm getting the same heaven that they got? And I asked myself the question this week, in fact. Now, this whole series was planned last September. But the finishing touches on the message this week. And I asked myself the question, what's the difference between a person who can't seem to give grace, who who does judge some, and sentences more, What's the difference? Sometimes they're they're just the best people in the world. Why is it they can do it and somebody else can't? Can give grace. Well, here's the problem. There's so many people in our churches today raised in the Christian faith, and they really feel deep down, they would never express this, they may not even know it, but deep down in their heart, they think that person just getting out of prison, God will never free, I mean, Come on, people don't change. I gotta I, I keep this group of people here visiting the church. I got to keep my kids away from them. No telling what they'll influence them to do. I got to do this. Okay? I don't think this person is going to, I mean, I don't want to hang around that person. What, what is wrong with that? They may be the sweetest people in the world. They may even pray for these people, give the missions. What's wrong? They've never tasted of the grace of God. They feel like, look, I've, I've been raised in church. And I've done all these things, but I just, I just need I know I'm not saved. I know I've sinned, so I just, I just need something to get me over the hump. And the cross gets me over the hump. I got just enough grace to save me, but I almost rescued myself, but not quite. Well, you look back at this other person, you think, well, they're way back here. They've done nothing for God. They are going to get a little, little bit of grace, too, and that's not enough to save them. Look, look how far they're away from salvation. I can't extend a grace to another believer. Sometimes the, the only army I know that shoots its own wounded soldiers is the Christian army. I've been told that. I can't give grace to that one or this one or that one. I just can't, I can't forgive them. They should have done better, like me. Like me. I wonder... If maybe some of the cl- people closest to me could identify with that, I have friends here. I know many of you. Know many of you. Some of you have been backing me up for 25 years. Take, took a strong back, didn't it? But maybe you're one of those that think, "Look how much I've done. Look at my background. Look at my genealogy. Look what I've done. I just, I just need a little bit of Jesus." Dear friends, salvation is coming before God saying, I need all of Jesus. I've done nothing to save myself. I've been good, so therefore, I've been a blessing to other people. But I still need the same grace that the worst sinner in the world needs. I still need the cross in my life. Maybe that's you today. In order to extend grace to others, We've got to experience the grace ourselves. If you've never done that, I want to challenge you today to make your decision to follow Jesus with heads bowed and eyes closed. As we pray before the Lord, let me ask you, do you know that you're saved? Do you know that you've come to that humility point of your life? to Trust the Lord. Pray this prayer with me if this is the case in your heart. Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for my sin. I open up the door of my heart. I ask you to come in. Please forgive me of all I've done. Make me the person that I need to be, a gracious person. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.